1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Mitch Michaels as always from the Santa Monica studio ready to bring you another exciting show full of expert analysis from the people involved in the game you love. The first guest on this week's show is International Tennis Hall of Famer and TC's own Pam Shriver. Pam joins the show in person to discuss all the exciting action in the Asian swing with Igas Viantic back in the winner's circle, Ben Shelton upsetting Yannick sitter as he continues to shine brightest under the big lights. Pam also discusses a variety of other topics, including Coco Guff's growth during the 2023 season, her favorite rivalries in the women's game, and how Pam became a coach herself working with Donna Vekic for the past year. And then I'm joined by Gil Alexander, a sports radio and television professional who's made a name for himself in the sports betting industry. Gil discusses his rise in the profession, his tennis fandom, how he approaches tennis betting, and how he's able to carve out his own path in a crowded but growing industry. It's Pam Shriver and Gil Alexander on Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. All right, now returning to Tennis Channel Inside In. We've done a few podcasts, it's been about a year uh, not driving a car this time, which is good. Pam Shriver, uh, you know, fellow Los Angeles, Brett neighbor of mine too. So Pam, welcome to the show. I know you're a big podcast personality in the tennis streets. Thanks for coming on a little old my show.
2: Thanks for having me again. There's always, no matter the month, the week, there's always so much to talk about in tennis.
1: I had a lot of notes written down, and then you were coming on. And I'm like, okay, I have even more to talk about. Like, we're in the Asian swing, and I know this time of year, everyone is, you know, debating whether or not the season goes too long and the schedules. But you see the high level of tennis in a region of the world that hasn't had it in a while, and you see what these players are playing for. I mean, you can go to both tours. The top players and some of the mid level players are still out there fighting either to get the ranking points at the end of this year, Pam, or in some of the very best players. We saw Ego, we saw center win titles. They're setting themselves up to be major players in the following years to come.
2: Yeah, it's a time of the circuit that's really interesting to follow. A lot of times it can be who's managed themselves best during the year. Um, It's interesting because, you know, having joined the Donna Vekic team about a year ago exactly this week during the uh, San Diego 500 that was in mid-October in 2022 – I have more of a firsthand feel to what each segment of the tour is like and how it can wear on a, on a player, because when you're, when you commentate and then you, you you know, you're living your life with your family and your kids, you kind of forget what you went through as a player all those years ago, but it is, it's a tough, long season, but all the more benefit to the players who can figure out how to stay motivated and stay healthy and really manage the process.
1: Yeah, and Donna's a great example. Right around the time you took over, it was kind of her end of the year was great, made that San Diego final, set herself up for a good 2023. And that's just a funny story because I saw you down there at San Diego, and it wasn't official yet, but it was like after the fact connecting the dots. I'm like, oh, there there's Pam. Donna's playing You're with your boys, I believe. And then the news breaks. I'm like, oh, that, that actually makes sense.
2: Well, it was <laughs> just a total um – Venture on my part. I wasn't working for Tennis Channel. My kids were mostly in school. I was with my oldest who was not in school. Um, and we just drove two hours down to take a look at a tournament where I wasn't working. I just wanted to kind of be a fan of women's tennis, connect with a few players like Pagula and Vekic on the player council. The next thing you know, start talking tennis with Donna. And she was pretty receptive. And, you know, it's, it's like what we saw with Brad Gilbert is it's, it's really easy to be a positive influence with a, a new voice early on. And then it's kind of been the last few months is, okay, because it's part time for me, I can't Mm -hmm. travel all the time. It's like, how can I influence now that it's been a year because Donna's kind of been hanging around the 20 to 24 in the rankings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, has she hit her ceiling or can she really gear up for 2024 and make a push back towards the top 10?
1: Have you enjoyed that process and and learned some things about not just her game and her style, but the coaching process being on the other side of it, knowing that you've been involved in the game for so long? But this is a different role for you. Yeah,
2: it's first time. I mean, it's really crazy. I'm 61. I've been playing the sport since I was four or five years old. It's been my primary A career as a player and then B career as a broadcaster. And then to throw in that I could have a new experience at yeah. um, this late in the game just shows you how wonderful the sport is. And I, I have enjoyed I mean, I coached a little bit at like my kids at middle school, and I've done a little bit of casual coaching on my home court, but nothing like this. But also the neat thing is to understand what it means in this day and age to be a part of a team. Right. So Donna has a couple of great European-based um, people on her team. Nick Horvat, who's Croatian, is her primary coach. And Yannick is in charge of the um, off-court fitness and also the physical therapy. kind of combines both roles. In Europe, they do that a lot where it's not like you need one person to help you with your training and mm-hmm. another person to help you keep yourself healthy. Um, and then we're looking to add actually next year is a really good consistent hitting partner because I can't hit anymore. I mean, <laughs> it can feed some balls. Yeah. And then Nick is a little bit you know, older as far as it goes to be able to hit. Uh, in the kind of way that Donna needs. So we're always trying to yep. help and figure out how to add to the team.
1: Well, hopefully, you get, s- hopefully you get some nice candles out of it at least. <laughs> I mean, I've bought a yeah, couple. I okay. bought a couple for my kids
2: yeah. and um, went to the little Wimbledon reception where I saw Tiafo walking by and I <laughs> roped Francis in to come in and support Donna's candle effort.
1: That's and, like a DMV thing. Like yeah, he has exactly. to say yes. He's just done by. And
2: an, interesting, on December 1st, Francis is going to be the first active player to be. Inducted into the USTA Mid Atlantic section along oh. with my great friend Sarah Fornasari, who's a big fan of the Tennis awesome. Channel, and um, I'm going to go back and be the MC. So I've been texting nice. with Francis, say, "Hey, you got to show up in person to get <laughs> yeah. this award."
1: That's awesome. No, that's just great to see and great to hear. You know, looking at this women's tour now, I wanted to start with the player that was number one, Igis Swiatek, wins Beijing, does it remarkably. You know, loses one set to Garcia in that tough match, but goes through Coco, goes through Samsonova in the final. You know, it's a ho-hum year, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's a letdown year. She just won her 60th match. So it'd be nice to have a letdown year like that. You just had a sense, right, that she would adjust. And that's why I, there's no direct comparison sports-wise to tennis, but it is almost like a combat sport, one-on-one. There's adjustments. She was being chased. You knew that she would find a way to retool her game. I think this is the least shocking bounce back I can think of.
2: Well, and you think about the great players through the years, um, the ones that have been at the top who maybe lose a spot or two in the rankings, they tend to respond pretty well. You know, you think about how Serena responded to, say, having losses, um, the revenge tour that she might have been on at certain points of her career. And I think Iga took that when she faced Coco. I mean, obviously Coco had the wrong side of that. Set after set after set was able to come out on top in uh, Cincinnati. And then Iga, you know she would have gone into that Next match after the loss, totally motivated to figure some things out. And I, I what I see from Egan since she lost the number one ranking is certainly she described a little more freedom to, to try and figure out some new wrinkles in her game, whether it's coming to net more, yeah. uh, using her second serve with a little more authority. So it's kind of fun to see the best try and get even better.
1: The pressure is its going to be their relative, but not being hunted every week. We're seeing it with Sabalenka. You're number one in the world, and that might not. I mean, Iga could get it back at the finals, but it's a different level of pressure. It's a huge honor, but everyone chasing you. I mean, I don't know that anyone who hasn't felt it can even relate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I only felt it at being at the top of the doubles, which is a totally different feeling. But um, having lived alongside Martina for all those years, really close to Chris Everett and some other number one players, um, it really is interesting to see the best. And we've seen it on the men's side for the last 20 years, how well the big three was able to just (laughs) – you know, attempt to keep their position at number one, or if they lost it.
1: They're mm-hmm. like unicorns, So, Like, nice. you can't even compare them to normal <laughs> like people.
2: Well, what's interesting about 2023 is I think it'll yeah. go down as the first year that we get an indication what the sport's going to be like after mm-hmm. the big three. And I'll say it's looking pretty good as we sit yeah. here talking in mid-October.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and, and for Iga, just getting back to her for a second, Beijing, that tournament, she said directly that I went for less. I played a little cleaner. And that is... You know, look, her A game is exceptional, but I did think a fair criticism of her was she didn't really adjust because she didn't have to a lot of times. If she's able to kind of make these self-aware calib- you know, recalibrations, I mean, then watch out for everyone else, Australia and beyond.
2: Well, just look at the quality of an athlete we're talking about. Yeah. Her skills are incredible. <laughs> she loves to learn. Um, seems like she has an open mindset. Um, so <laughs> I think it, it goes together. And, uh, you know, while I'm sure she wanted to hang on to the number one ranking, mm-hmm. Um, I think she kind of, or the pressure of the number one, we mm-hmm. can sort of see it gnawing away at her. So I think it is good for her to have a little break and then chase it down again.
1: And on clay, it's her era. So it's her run of the mill on clay. That's never been anything, even this year, winning it. I, I did want to ask you though, this is kind of the closest I'll get to like a hot button, hot take question. Although I have to warrant guests because the show King and has gotten aggregated. But, you know, you mentioned her, your good friend, Chrissy Everett. Do you think Iga can get to seven RG titles?
2: I think she can. I mean, obviously, you don't know what's around the corner as far as, uh, you know, if Andreva, Mm -hmm. for example, just becomes like a great clay court player. But, you know, who else looks as comfortable on clay, Uh, whether it's a little older than Iga, the same age, or a little bit younger? Nobody. So I do think, um, (laughs) you know, Iga can certainly chase down Chrissy's record already with three. It's hard to believe it's two years ago this week that Iga played that crazy Roland Garros in the middle of October because yeah. of the pandemic. And that's what started to up her tally. Um, so yeah, I think anything's possible.
1: Three banked by 22 yep. is crazy. And shout out to Andreva, a 16 year old into the top 50. I was looking at the names of, of people that had done that. It's like Capriati, Serena, Hingis, Coco. It's a pretty good company.
2: Yeah. And, and this, at this time to do it, it was much easier back in the day There it wasn't the age eligibility rule. There wasn't as big a tennis physical,
1: yeah, that's a big thing that the age eligibility rule, like, and just to explain to everyone out there, they, lim- they limit your events now that you can play, right? Like that was the thing back then. It was just free wow. for all, turn pro and play.
2: And there were too many patterns of young players, uh, say, who started in the mid-teens, 15 to mm-hmm. 17 years of age, who struggled, whether it was physical or emotional, uh, a combination of really talented young players early in their career, whether it was Jaeger, or Austin, again, for varying different reasons, mm-hmm. They were sidetracked, and they never really got back on track. And in the end, a lot of people felt it was because they played too
1: much. Well, we've seen some of these teens not just get limited. They've actually gone above and beyond after they have this ranking breakthrough. Coco, obviously, is the great example. A good first outing, returning to the court after. You know, we mentioned after winning the U.S. Open, the life-changing moment, we mentioned that Ega was going to adjust. But what have you seen? Obviously, she wins the major, works with Brad Gilbert, works tirelessly on her game. But in the last year or so, since the last time we talked, what developments have you seen? How has she honed her skills the most and become a major champion?
2: Well, if you'd asked me that right after Wimbledon, I would have had a totally different answer. Um, the response that Coco and the team has had since Wimbledon by adding, you know, where, I know Pear Revo was hired a little bit before <laughs> Brad Gilbert, but to, to, to be able to merge those voices together, Um, to have the presence of the dad to be able to step back from at least being in the box. I mean, obviously, he's still very much involved. I thought it was a really mature decision by Coco and the team to bring on who they brought on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, it was a clear, it was almost like in a much less high-profile way, a little bit what I went through with Donna, which is bring a clear voice, help get rid of some of the noise that develops in your head. Um, Certainly, there hadn't been a shot that was as criticized as much as the Coco Gauff forehand um, all year long through Wimbledon, and then for her to be able to figure out how to emotionally put this shot in the right place. Like, the forehand's not a total disaster as long as her footwork's okay and she has the right racket head speed, but she needed to change her mindset. I felt like she got caught up in all the questions about it instead of worrying about what makes her great on the court, which is her speed, her serve, and her emotional toughness.
1: Yeah, and she showed all those in the U.S. Open run in the final. Focusing on strengths, which is what Gilbert and Reva brought to the team. Also, and I say this from the outside, but one person wins a week. How you handle the losses and how you handle the progress is huge because you can't you can't even ego, like winning all those matches, you're going to lose in this sport. So how you handle the week-to-week ups and downs and, and ride that wave, and she's shown tremendous maturity at her age. So I'm I'm excited to see where it goes because we're at the spot with women's tennis where – I mean the final field. These are this is as adequately loaded a final field as we've had in a long time. Top ten, all but Pagula made a major final. This is a pretty deep field.
2: Yeah, it's exciting. Um, when you think about like Muhova, what she was able to do, almost winning Roland Garros over Iga. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to see Vondrasova come through when Wimbledon. It it you know, to me it's the best of both worlds. You have some players like Sabalenka, R- Rybakina, obviously Iga, Coco, Pagula really defending their top 10 ranking or in the case of most of those I mentioned top five Um, but also you have some newcomers and you have some opportunities so I think it's a really good balance right now
1: yeah we did talk I think it was the first time where you're like I'd like to see some you know more consistency at the top and I think we're getting it I mean I think we're it's not it's hard to get to your era where it was just the same dominant hall of fame women and maybe when you were playing, it would have been nice to have a couple <laughs> less, yeah, but certainly. But it is nice now that we're not seeing as many—I don't want to say flukes, but as many one-and-done runs—and then back to the mean.
2: Well, also, I'm kind of, um, I'm sort of eager to look at the last five years who had breakthroughs, who kind of disappeared for a bit for whatever reason—physical or just things that mm-hmm. their life was kind of turned upside down by the success—and let's see if Undrescu can remain healthy for yeah. a period of time, make a push back towards the top ten. You know how will Radikano come back after the surgeries? Will will she be able to continue her promise? Um, and maybe Radikano will have a chance to reset and have more of yeah. a normal trajectory towards the top.
1: Yeah, you were on that as well. Like it's a- in Osaka. Sorry, and I mean, and, and
2: coming. We got some great maternity leaves <laughs> continuing. Yeah,
1: the sport just keep the train just keeps rolling like it doesn't stop. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that match in Asia, uh, Osaka and Andrescu. It was like a three hour classic and. You know, unfortunately for, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, things are going to happen. But do you do you have, before we move on, do you have a favorite kind of matchup stylistically? I know you're just a tennis nerd like me. There's some good rivalries brewing in styles. And I just want to know if a women's rivalry is sticking out to you.
2: Well, I think there's a few that are starting to come to the top. Um, first off, I'll just say as far as styles, like, uh, like I never would have thought I would have enjoyed two players bashing the ball as hard as each other as... <laughs> Rybaka and Sabalenka the that ran down final. That's, I mean that was just unbelievable. It reminded yeah. me a little bit of a 30 year ago <laughs> match when um, Capriati took on Celis in the semifinals of yep. the U.S. Open, and it was 7-6 in the third to Celis. But it was like this knockdown, <laughs> drag out power clash that wasn't full of unforced yep. errors, and that's kind of what happened. So that was great <laughs> to see. But generally, matches that I like the most are contrasting style matches where you can sort of see a lot more of the chess moves.
1: Yeah, Iga Sabalinka or, you know, Coco Sabalinka in that regard. I, it was crazy. I had that, like, Sabalinka or You wouldn't think that'd be, you know, the style that works, but it does. Maybe it's the contrasting emotions, like the sound of metal and Sabalinka and the sound of silence. Rabacchina just doesn't react. It's the craziest thing I've seen.
2: You know, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> yeah. It's Not only do you have contrasting styles, game style, but you mm-hmm. also have contrasting mm-hmm. styles with emotions. Yeah. So that, that was on um, cue there for yeah. Rabacchina and Sabalenka.
1: there's some good ones for sure uh and then your, your thoughts on Cancun as the, as a spot I know a lot happened and they had to kind of scramble but you know it is something I mean I would like to like we're all hoping that there's more planning in the future but thoughts on the finals being in Cancun this year
2: well first off big respects to the family in Mexico I, I know their first names Gus uh, Gus Jr. and Gus Sr. the father-son combination that lead their family's uh, investment in women's tennis when you think about two years ago Guadalajara hosted the WTA tour final. It's kind of the last we ended up seeing of Muguruza as she won it and I haven't hardly seen her since, but it was an amazing atmosphere and they have a similar situation in Cancun. And I saw the start of the build of the stadium in the last week. It is really not enough time to promote such mm-hmm. a big event. And, and I do think women's tennis, the culmination tour championships deserves to have a better and longer spotlight but having said that we're still just emerging out of the most difficult time because of the pandemic and because of geopolitics. Um and so I kind of understand how it came to be that it was late again but it's like enough already let's have enough mm-hmm. of a advance warning and really promote yeah. it because this deserves to be highlighted.
1: Yeah, the players are all invested, you know, they're going to be there, they want to play for the ranking points, the money, everything and the and the bragging rights. So Hopefully we get to a point where it's more heavily promoted and uh, it seems like it's going to get in that direction. And also Pagua and Coco doing it in doubles too. You can kind of speak to how hard that is, right? Like to be a top player in both the singles and the doubles tour when it could, you know, there could be that push-pull if your singles aren't doing as well. Am I, in the back of your mind, thinking, am I focusing a little more on doubles than I should?
2: Yeah, I only lived through that as far as late, late in both tournaments once. And that was in 88 when I got the singles final Losing to Sabatini and Martina and I won the doubles. I saw Martina go through it every (laughs) year for like 15 years. Um, And I think it's one of the great things that the two out of three set format in the women's game really allows for players like Goff and Bagula to push towards the top in both singles and doubles. I like it
1: More with Pam Shriver here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Just a beautiful time in the tennis calendar. We're into October. There's still matches on the other side of the world from us here in Santa Monica, California. Reacting to one that we just saw, you know, that we just, just happened last night. Ben Shelton took out Yannick Center in a three-set, intense, highly entertaining matchup. We'll get to Center in a second, but Ben Shelton again. I mean, he's professing it, Pam. He is built for these big stages and big moments, and he brings something to tennis that I think was maybe missing a little bit, and it's so refreshing to see another dynamic personality who is backing it up against the best.
2: And, and it's a combination of uh, the young, fresh face and the bold personality. Um, you know, he was part of one of the more controversial moments, a couple of them at the U.S. Open <laughs> – when he hung up when he answered the phone answered the call against Tiafo <laughs> yeah. and then and then Djokovic kind of turned the tables and did the same thing and but it was it's kind of like cool for tennis to be like yeah. in the trash talking elite <laughs> yeah. of, of athletes why not why not tennis and you know i think um yeah, Ben Shelton along with Alcaraz, Coco Goff, I mean, they lead the charge of this 19, 20, 21-year-old age group that's pretty special.
1: He's an exceptional athlete as far as tennis players goes. Watching the match, his movement, his ability, the power he generates, everyone knows about the serve. What I saw today was if he can just hang in the rally just enough, the backhand was much maligned, if he can give himself more looks, because he puts so much pressure on you with that serve, yeah. it's... From the lefty side, you know like what he can do with it. He is, you know, and he's raising his level. That's the other thing. I think the question with him was that tour record when he was still a rookie, having his dad in his corner, Brian Shelton, is a huge influence. But he is raising his level when he gets out there. We know Center was a little tired, but, you know, Shelton (laughs) Shelton went and took that match. He lost four straight points in that third set tiebreaker and still won.
2: Yeah, and you know, you kind of think about Shelton's last 10 months, say, and he had the breakthrough down in Australia getting to the quarters and then really struggled to win matches, didn't win back-to-back matches till the summer, um, but stayed still so positive. And speaking of doubles, he got to the doubles final in D.C. Uh, I think he lost that doubles final, but I noticed – I was like thinking to myself when he won those matches to get through to the doubles final, sometimes how doubles wins can help set the table for singles, and mm. it was soon thereafter – that he really turned it yeah. back on in the singles, and we saw what he did at the U.S. Open. Um, and I think now um, Shelton's going to be <laughs> ready to keep marching along, assuming he stays healthy, which is always the million-dollar question.
1: Absolutely no worries about Yannick, what he's done. I mentioned you, know, you win in China, he beat Medvedev to do it, which he goes Alcaraz Medvedev and throwing up in a trash can, might <laughs> oh, I add. Oh, my God. <laughs> but maybe that's a good oh. luck charm now. But, look, he's number four in the world. He's working with another one of your friends, Darren Cahill. He's made a difference there. Sinner has proven that he could be next up. Now, I don't know what the gap is in the majors. Djokovic obviously has still got the stranglehold. Alcaraz has proven he's on that level. But I think relatively across the board, tennis people think Sinner could be the next one.
2: When you think about one of the more interesting off court marketing things it was the Wimbledon poster right the rivalry poster that had Alcaraz and Sinner walking down the steps for Wimbledon not like that No a lot of people didn't but maybe Wimbledon knew something and and certainly given their how close they are in in ages and and their main contrast is a little bit of their game but it's really that personality uh, mm. difference that that makes it fun so again men's tennis women's tennis a lot of great young stars and um Sinner's learning. It's not easy to win a tournament as big as Beijing and then get -hmm. ready again the very next Mm -hmm. week, and it makes you realize how tremendous the big three were to do that year after year.
1: What do you think something that Cahill's made a difference on Sinner's game or maybe mental outlook to this long grind of a season?
2: Yeah, well, Darren is definitely not only a great tactical, technical coach, but he's a great mindset coach. So I think um, that's been an improvement for Yannick Sinner to believe he belongs at the top. Uh, when I first talked to Darren uh, about 14 months ago, when he first started with Yannick, and I, I asked him, I said, "What are one of the things you're working on early?" He said a couple of things with the serve. Mm-hmm. Really felt that, given his height, given his live arm, that he could get more out of the serve. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously, the more free points, and I've had this conversation with Donna a ton, is the more you can hit your targets <laughs> in your serve, win short points, especially,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, as your career mm-hmm. develops, it's just. Easier, So the serve to me will always be the most important shot in tennis. And I feel like that's where Darren's made one of the biggest differences.
1: Makes sense. And you can just look at a guy like Novak Djokovic whose serve MPHs isn't as high, but it's gotten better. He's worked it and he is so money in big points, hitting the target and getting a free point.
2: And look at his second serve, how much that shot's improved in the last 15 years. I mean, really for Djokovic, it's like shoring up the forehand from early in his career, his mental game, and then that second serve and you, you improve those three yeah. areas as much as he has, no wonder.
1: You just have to evolve. I think that's what it comes down to. The game is constantly improving, getting better, and you're not getting any younger. Djokovic like a chameleon out there. We saw it in Serena. We saw it in Federer at the end of his career, too. So yeah. something to consider. I
2: mean, listen, capturing longevity <laughs> right now, given the physical nature and the demands on the arm and the hips and the feet and the ankles, mm-hmm. you know the way pl- athletes move. I mean, you see the way uh players move these days and if you turn back the channel like 30 years you almost feel like it's a different sport in some ways
1: <laughs> yeah that was uh a couple weeks ago uh mark patchy came on the show got a, caused a little bit of an uproar with the take that he thinks coco golf is the best pure athlete he's seen in women's tennis and he his whole argument was the game's evolving with how they're moving nowadays not to take away of like tennis players and what you accomplish also, with the caveat of like it's hard to compare eras. So yeah, it's hard to you know compare, what I mean. That's, compare eras of great athletes yeah.
2: like like put Groff up and, and he, Navratilova yeah. and um, yeah, any number of I, I, I would even say I always like to look at smaller <laughs> athletes too, like Justine Enna, Ash yeah. Barty, Billie Jean King, the ones that are five six or mm-hmm. shorter. Yeah. So it's it's a, it's interesting and it, it is tough to compare.
1: This Shanghai Masters event, which is longer, we're seeing some upsets. You know the full field wasn't there. But certain players, like Korda beats Medvedev, gets Shelton next. Seve Korda with two wins over Medvedev had a dip in the middle of the year, but suddenly an opportunity for him. Rublev had that match yesterday, uh, as we record this, against Manorino, where he apologized for playing so well. <laughs> six three six love. He's like, sorry, I was unreal. So, like, there is a zone. You would know this. Like, there's moments when you're in the zone where it's like, wow, this is – Put this on my calendar of days, I feel untouchable.
2: It's fascinating, uh, the Corda-Shelton matchup. They never played. They're both about the you know, Corda's a couple years older. Corda's somebody who, you know, another one, they also Mm -hmm. both got to the quarters of the Australian Open, first major of the year. Both suffered issues after that. Corda's was more physical with a wrist injury. Um, But obviously, and and talk about somebody, I noticed, like, his serve, Corda's serve, seemed to be a little more powerful and earning him more free points. So I I love that matchup, and how they're pushing each other, especially yeah. the American guys.
1: Yeah, we've seen, I mean, even in this tournament, like Hubie Hercush wins. Uh, Merez and the guy who could beat Alcaraz, he wins again. He beats Rude last night. And this is somebody, and I bring him up, with this expanded field, there's going to be the arguments of is it good, is it bad? He's not in the draw. He might not, I mean, most likely it would be tough for him to get out of qualifying, but a bigger field and opportunity, and here he is setting his Europe.
2: And it just shows you the depth in the game. Um, when you see you know players ranked you know around the 100 mark or even lower have their chance mm-hmm. and you know they they go into it maybe they've had you know some futures or challenger tournaments that have they've been through the semis and the finals they've played sometimes you can play more matches at the lower level and then you're you get your break in a main mm-hmm. big ATP tournament like Shanghai and you can really yeah. pay it off whereas you get some right. players that are ranked around 20 Because they're playing (laughs) high-level tournaments. They've only played a couple matches in the last two months.
1: Yeah. I mean, this tournament still does have Alcaraz, so I'm, like, not fully saying we're going to see complete parity. His match with Evans was exceptional. And I wanted your reaction to the thoughts. He's like, I think about Djokovic every day, every practice, getting number one and beating the best.
2: Well, I think that's part of building a rivalry, right? I mean, it's really been special what's happened since Roland Garros um, because that was the semifinal that everybody wanted they hadn't you know they i guess they'd played in madrid the year before yeah but they hadn't played at a major um and then even though it didn't end up great because of the loss of condition by alcaraz the first two sets were just mind-blowingly great and then the wimbledon final the same so whenever you can get two great matchups late in a major that are that memorable, a rivalry is born. And I love the fact that Alcaraz just says out front, I think about him every day. I don't know if he thinks about the number 23, because that would be a little intimidating.
1: Yeah, we have to. <laughs> that's true. That's a lot of majors. And that's why I say if Alcaraz finishes with like 12 majors or Pete Sampras is 14, let's not overlook how insane that is to win that many majors. So, but he's got the goods for sure. And, and the last thing on the men's match is that I wanted to get to, you know, you go and bear beat it's and Bear has a stat that's like 9 and 9 versus the top 10 for a guy who's never been in the top 20 and he's got a worse winning percentage against uh, yeah lefty and against the non top 20.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was yeah. 100% that uh lefty because I do think these the lefties yeah. on both the men's and the women's tour yeah. have this innate kind of benefit of you don't see as many lefties and you can just surprise him look at manorino's done this year he's had one of the best years of his career in his mid-30s and a lot, and shelton on the younger side with his yeah. leftiness so I, it, it's the, great
1: the manorino shelton that's like the spectrum of like power in tennis right that's like w- both ends of the spectrum did you ever play anyone like manorino that like gave you nothing Power wise,
2: well, actually, from the back of the court, I was a little bit known that way, where I would just kind of like slice and dice and push it back, and then wait for the short ball, and then come in. But now, I think uh, Manorino, combination the lefty and the lack of power. What does he string his racket at, like a, like a fishing net? <laughs> yeah, um, it's an unusual package. Yeah.
1: He also says he doesn't know who he's playing until oh, that's right crazy. before. Right? Is like I know tennis players. You guys can be like all athletes, maybe a little quirky at certain things not looking at draws, I kind of understand. But to not know, I mean, in this age of scouting, I was like, wow. It
2: was funny this week, uh, Don, Donna and I spoke a couple days before yeah. the start of Zhen which is on this week. I think that's how you say the name of the city. And and she told me she was going to play a certain player, and then I looked the next day to find out when she played, and it was like totally different. Turns out too late withdrawals. Uh, but she doesn't like to know anything other than her next opponent. And, and like during the U.S. Open this year, didn't want to know who she played that when the draw came out because it's like gives you four or five days, right. and sometimes that's just too much time to think about one right. opponent.
1: I think it's fair to have a day. <laughs> I mean, that, he, yeah, so to a literally day. just show up at the court and be like, "Oh, I'm playing." Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously,
2: you're in this day and age. Every, yeah. Pretty much everybody has a team, so your team is in charge of mm-hmm. the scouting, and then mm-hmm. a lot of people don't want to know the game plan days and days
3: in advance. Okay. You want to talk about yeah. it the day
1: before. Well, the last thing too with this where should we be concerned wise with Sitsipas? Cause it's, there's, you know, it's been an interesting year to say the least. There's been a lot of turbulence, I'll, I'll put it.
2: Yeah. A lot of turbulence, a lot of on and off court, uh, social media posts, a lot of stuff about the coaching situation, dating Badosa, you know, I, I know what it's like to be the chaser and to not quite get there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was exhausting, when I, I, I had about eight or nine years where I was somewhere between three and seven in the world and trying to chase down Chrissy Martina, and then Groff and Celis, and eventually hit the wall uh, around when I was like 27, 28. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether or not that's happening to Tsitsipas now and kind of like a little disheartened now seeing the quality of Alcaraz, Sinner, and, and even Shelton.
1: Maybe you get passed as like a thing that For creeps. Sure. And he had that two sets of the love on Djokovic in the French Open final. Do not have a major I means Vera dealing with similar things up in that match against team, but it weighs on you. I would just say, and I don't even judge the, the personal life stuff, more power to him, let everyone be happy. Stability in the coaching ranks does matter. You, you can't convince me otherwise. Look at these players that are having su- success. I think he, I, I hope whatever he decides, it's his life. He's a grown man. It's his career that he does get to a place where there's stability.
2: Well, it's interesting when you look at, uh, I'll throw in, Sonia Kennan and her dad, and even Coco Goff and her dad, and Tsitsipas, is it's a combination of when you get a young adult, um, and I'm going through this now with my teenagers that are 18, 18, and 19, you want them to strive towards independence from their parents. You want them to be you know, supportive of your family, uh, but yet have their own path. Mm-hmm. and so it's it's up to both it's yeah. up to the it's up to the maturing adult in this case the young player but it's also really up to the parent to give the green light right. that it's okay yeah. it for the parent to take a step back that's why i highlighted what yeah. cory golf has done right. to help coco
1: well i just didn't like how the the phil pousas thing was handled it didn't seem right to me that he just says in a press conference like we're, we're kind of ending our relationship now but you know, that's a, that's a tough well, one. We've heard
2: that before, right? They've had yeah. like this in, yeah, and, in yeah. and out. So I, I, I yeah. don't know. But I, I think if I was Philip Pussis, I would not. If I was asked to go back a third time, I, I would have to say <laughs> N-O.
1: Well. Coaching movement's tough. I, I want to say that with giving a shout out to Quinn Zhang for, uh, you know, right the ship after some stuff that went down for her. It's just, it's tough. And I know the coaches we talked about last week have a right to move on because it is a cutthroat business. But just hope for some professionalism in uh, how business is handled.
2: Yeah. I mean in that case Wim Fassett obviously was coaching Osaka and before Osaka took the break and um, you know these are <laughs> these are tough these are tough yeah. things and I don't know the ins yeah. and outs but I can certainly understand professionally why Wim would want to try and step mm-hmm. up to the challenge of getting Osaka back on track. For
1: sure. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Hope these players can uh, bounce back and play their best tennis going forward. Uh, wrapping up here with Pam Shriver on Tennis Channel Inside and in. a couple quick hitters before I let you go. We're both happy as relative East to Midwestern Westerners at heart that Cincinnati's staying re up for, it looks like another 25 years or beyond. Djokovic and Coco Goff make the announcement, but the Charlotte, uh, you know, luring was there, but the Cincinnati Masters staying at home.
2: In such a professional team in charge of uh, the series of tournaments that Ben Navarro is mm-hmm. invested in and You know, whether or not it was a ploy to try and get a better deal in Cincinnati and maybe they weren't going anywhere Mm -hmm. anyway, but I do think the rise up of support from the players, Mm -hmm. from fans, from, you know, everybody in tennis who just has a special spot, even though Mason, Ohio doesn't provide the greatest five star (laughs) hotels, five star restaurants, you got to go into Cincinnati it's still such a beautiful fabric of the of the Midwest, and it's a really important tennis region for our country.
1: I like seeing the matches when Kings Island is just shooting off fireworks <laughs> just while tennis is going on. But I had faith in Todd Martin running that now that he would, you know, Midwest guy was going to keep it there. So props to Cincinnati for, for keeping it going. also want to give a shout out. We, we mentioned it last week, but... Another coworker of yours, Lindsay Davenport going to take yes. over the Billie Jean King cup team. I thought, I thought Kathy Rinaldi has done a great job. It was a great run by her won the title in 2017, but something kind of feels you know perfect about Lindsay Davenport being the captain of this team.
2: Well, Lindsay's really done it all in the sport. She's been number one and won an Olympic gold played on all the, then it was called fed cup uh, is uh, part of the support team for, to, for one of the rising young mm-hmm. stars in the, in boys tennis with their son Jagger. So <laughs> Lindsay knows all parts of tennis from what it takes to win a major in Olympic gold team events, you know, how to manage the season. I think she was in the coaching box when Madison keys had her first great breakthrough in Melbourne, getting to the semifinals and people have a lot of respect. And whenever I listen to Lindsay on tennis channel, such great quality, such an incredible tennis IQ. I'm not sure I realized when Lindsay played that she was so sound Mm -hmm. with the tactics of how to play. And I think, those little tidbits that you can do from the sideline, uh, in the coaching box in the Billie Jean King cup, I think Lindsay will make a difference.
1: We did a, uh, podcast last July before the Wimbledon final. And I've never talked to someone of her stature that just downplayed her own career so much. I was like halfway through my, come on, like, (laughs) Like, like, yeah. And, and
2: you know, you look at her overall career title somewhere in the mid forties and how many, you know, (laughs) what we would call the WTA one thousands. Yeah. Could have won more than just three majors, but at least she got those three in.
1: (laughs) She did, and she beat some incredible players to do it. So uh, we do love to see that. I I wanted to get your opinion as a former player, just a crash course, if you will, on the tennis ball issue, Mm -hmm. because I know there's been players on both tours now – you know, Paul Bidos is saying it's an issue on the women's tour as well as the men's, but that there's a lot of shoulder injuries and, and wrist and elbow injuries because of how heavy these balls are. Is this something that, you know, with your pulse to the courts, working with the player being at these events that you're noticing as well? And is it something that we can fix?
2: Well, I think we need to have a really expert panel, kind of like we had the age eligibility panel, because that, that <laughs> got to the heart of why there were so many sort of early burnouts. But if we're having arm injuries, and one of the contributing factors is the change of tennis ball so many times during the course of a year, you know, you think about how golf golfers can can play with their own golf balls and tennis, Mm -hmm. you're at the at the, you're beholden to the tournament and the deal they've done with what manufacturer and maybe if you play Guadalajara, it's at altitude. Mm -hmm. and So that's a totally different kind of ball. And all in a time when the game is so powerful, they felt like they had to slow the courts down, put more grit on the hard courts and how that responds to some tennis balls, some it fluffs up, some it takes the fluff off. So I do think we need to look at it because the pace of play is enough to ruin arms, shoulders, Mm -hmm. elbows. And so if we can do anything to help the athlete arm, I'm all for it.
1: There is the, and again, this is a tennis player argument out there, that they want, that the balls are slower, they want longer points, and that is a negative reaction to the health. If that is the case and there's something we can do to change that i'm all for it because you don't want players getting injured you don't the season and and people will look at how long the season is as well so i mean we're into month 10 of this and we you know we have players dropping like flies it seems like it's something that can be at least adjusted a little bit
2: yeah and look i know the sport has reacted to different phases of how the game was played when the men uh, were dominating in the 80s and early 90s with a lot of big serving, and like yeah. it was like serve plus one. There was very few rallies over four. Mm-hmm. Wimbledon slowed their grass courts down. So they played more like hard courts. The balls were probably adjusted. So I just think we need to not let the pendulum swing so right. far and say, mm-hmm. oh, because I want entertaining long rallies that actually <laughs> right. hurt the yeah. body and the wear and tear. So yeah. you got to split the difference.
1: How different would you say? having your experiences that wimbledon court is from when you played uh,
2: well it's funny this year (laughs) i wouldn't call my my, the way i hit this year exactly um the way i used to play but i did hit for about 15 20 minutes on the grass courts and the bounces are definitely (laughs) higher which for me at my age i was happy not to have to bend down but you know they have homogenized a little bit so that grass courts definitely play more like a medium-paced hard court
1: well, I'm excited to see the rest of this year. Uh, last thing for Pam Shriver. As always, Janice with her time. Um, i would be hitting the links later today. From I I've think heard, I am.
2: So. I'm, I'm playing with the former Baltimore Oriole, Brady Anderson. He's oh, been a friend Brady since I Anderson put on my charity tennis event okay. in Baltimore. He loved tennis. He got did to know yeah. some of the women players back in the day, and so we're going to tee it
1: up. Didn't know he was out here. I 50 home runs in 96. Yeah. I remember that. You know, I, I will say. Brady was one of the first really sad moments for me as a as a Cleveland formerly Indians fan. That '96 season, they came in and beat us, and I just had to Sorry. witness that. So, I <laughs> well, hope you guys get making a series this time. the The last thing though is, when what, what about Rafa coming back? What should we expect? I know I want to be reasonable. I don't want it to be the cliche farewell tour, but you know, should there be a little optimism or taper expectations? What should we expect when Nadal comes back?
2: I think taper expectations. I I feel like. You know, the three out of this is where the three out of five set format, if if he wants to really have the ultimate goal, which is to add to his tally of majors, I just think it's really hard now with what his mm-hmm. body's been through. I do think the two out of three, whether it's the Olympic Games, there's certain things he could mm-hmm. maybe try to manage and and be respectable. But I, I'm having a hard time seeing how this is gonna go down.
1: And it's that game evolving. There's always a new crop of young Strapping men entering the workforce and just coming in, and you know we saw that with Federer. I mean, the last time we talked, it was okay. He saw the writing on the wall. You joked about it, like that Center Alcaraz match happened. It was probably like okay, might be time to exit stage right.
2: Yeah, and and when you think about all the work that Rafa has put into his game, the reps and that topspin and the way he his physicality and he's had to make some adjustments Mm -hmm. and cut down on the hours of training to try and have Mm -hmm. a long career which he has had but now it's a certain point where else do you turn
1: yeah well we'll just cherish any time we get with him Uh, pam shriver always a blast thanks again for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast i know you got your friends with the a-listers we're trying to always chase that outstanding show so anytime i get to talk tennis with you is a blast and a privilege so thanks again for coming on inside
2: looking forward to the next time
1: Huge thanks to Pam Shriver, the Hall of Famer, the Baltimore Orioles, longtime suffering fan. Unfortunately, it didn't get any better for her in that regard, but she's one of the smartest tennis minds I know, and it always is a privilege to talk the game that she dedicated her life to. Thanks to Pam Shriver for joining Tennis Channel Inside In. And the next guest on this week's show is Gil Alexander from the Visa Network in Las Vegas, Nevada, a sports betting expert. A weekly radio show host as well as a podcast show, Beating the Book, which is also his Twitter handle. Gil was a tremendous guest telling his life story from breaking into the industry with that passion for sports. How he took to the gambling market, became a professional and expert in that. His love of tennis, how he approaches the tennis market, and how he deals with people that still have negative connotations and feelings towards gambling in the sports industry. Here's Gil Alexander for a tremendous chat now on Tennis Channel Inside In. All right, Tennis Channel Inside In, now welcoming onto the show. Very, very honored to have this guest on the show from the Visa Network. He hosts the radio show, "The Numbers Game, on Sirius Channel 204, weekdays out of Las Vegas. He also hosts Being the Book podcast, which is his Twitter handle as well. Calling us in right now, Gil Alexander, welcome to the show. First-time guest, excited to talk about your story, also some tennis with you.
3: Hey, Mitch, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: This is a uh, very big opportunity on the show to kind of get the bubble outside of, you know, just the, the day-to-day tennis stuff, which we also appreciate, but I do like hearing different stories and perspectives of people that got into the sports industry. You've got, I think, we're on decade number four now in sports, so a little weathered at this point.
3: <laughs> well, it makes it sound so old, my God. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, you know, it's just one of these things where uh, you start out, and you're, you're sort of born a sports fan and... You get to, you know, people say, live in the dream. And I guess I, I ended up living the dream.
1: So it did start, if I have this right, it started your DMV Washington, D.C. area. You just got hooked on sports. You had, obviously, the Washington Redskins football teams and some proud lineage of other sports as well. But you, you caught the bug early.
3: I was the kid who, I, I can't really explain it, you know, um, when I was six years old, my parents who are not from the United States who immigrated to, so I am first generation American. Uh, but at six years old, I was the kid who ran to the front door and grabbed the Washington post and read the sports page word for word. And my parents sort of had to walk over me. I was so entranced. And the first time I saw a skins game, I could think of nothing else. So I, I can't really even you say, Oh, I, I, you know, I went after it. It was just born that way. I really was.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, the the part about the you know having immigrant parents because I have a similar urge and a lot of people I think that are just born into sports or just have the bug early but you were literally the first to kind of discover it so you didn't have it passed down this was a pure organic love yeah. of, of the games
3: yeah and my memory some of my greatest memories of my father quite frankly uh, who's no longer with us were going to skins games in D C mm-hmm. and him. Loving, you know, developing the love for American football because of his child's love for, it. and that was a way for us to connect. So a lot of a lot of Americans wax poetically, a lot of uh, multi-generation Americans wax poetically about their love of baseball and how their father took them to games, and that was the way they bonded. And mine was sort of a reverse football thing,
1: if you will. <laughs> oh, it's it's very cool. It's a good perspective to kind of hear. Uh, but how was Dad with the fantasy football stuff? Because I hear you got in trouble in middle school you were and this is you know before the industry really blew up but you were all <laughs> fantasy sports and maybe maybe the leader of uh, some stuff going on there
3: well it wasn't fantasy in uh you know I, I collected baseball cards growing up and then there was a price guide and that was sort of my first experience with sports connecting to money in any way and value <laughs> um not that the baseball card industry <laughs> has really grown from there i have yeah. to tell you but, uh, yeah, I did. Boy, you know a lot. I, I, uh, I did a football pool, just a simple NFL betting picks football pool that no one taught me how to do. No one told me to do it. But I was like, hey, uh, it wasn't against the spread. It was just pick winners. It was $2, kids at school. I went to a, a private school outside of D.C., so it was like super buttoned up. You weren't supposed to gamble, let alone do your own side <laughs> yeah. hustles. I remember my whole thing was, oh, I won't, my my thing for running the pool is I don't have to put in the $2, but I could still win it. So, like, I had all these, like, things that in my head, and then I I got caught finally after years of being worried that I would get caught doing this, a teacher uh, grabbed, grabbed my shoulder, I'll never forget, <laughs> in the horror that the, that my my thing had finally been found out. And I'll never forget, in his uh, North Carolina accent, he said to me, he said, how'd I get in on this? <laughs> so, I sort yeah. of knew... Um, but, hey, maybe, maybe people like to gamble on yeah. this kind
1: of thing. Yeah, you just wanted you know. some advice. Yeah, that's, that's, that's hilarious. Um, you know, and you mentioned, like, you go to these good schools, you know, all the way through college. Was working in sports on the background or were you on in, in the forefront of your mind, rather, or were you just kind of playing it by ear and just seeing where life took you? Because I, I asked that question to a lot of people, and the results are mixed, whether they had a plan, like, I'm getting to work in sports or they just figure it out as it goes.
3: Uh, You know, uh, getting back to the immigrant parents, I had, uh, let me be more specific. I have uh, Jewish parents who, uh, this will be very stereotypical, where their idea was one, you know, I have one sibling, he's an older brother. One was destined to be a doctor in their minds, and one was destined to be a lawyer in their minds. And as cliche as that sounds, that's how my parents viewed things. And they meant well, and they meant well. They got their doctor, um... You know, Mitch, they got their doctor, they didn't get their lawyer. I just didn't have it in my heart. I applied to law schools because of the pressure of my of my dad specifically. I got into some good schools. I didn't go. I did the whole I'm gonna defer this for a year. And then I you know, I think I even deferred it for a second year. I just kinda figured it out at some point. It's like I knew what I wanted to do when I was six years old. When I was reading the Washington post war session, when I was imitating the voices of announcers and you know, to my parents' credit, and I say this slowly, right? Because yeah. I'm not like I'm, I'm sort of giving them the benefit here. <laughs> At some point, they sort of figured out, well, maybe this kid knows what he wants to do. Yeah. But it was not easy. Like there was a lot of years, even in adulthood, where I was just like a lot of pressure still from from up above in the family. So I, I ended up there. I probably should have ended should have ended up there sooner, quite frankly.
1: Yeah, I also think not to kind of, you know, date yourself age wise, but the industry hadn't really exploded, not just, you know, sports gambling, but sports itself. So there would be naturally more trepidation to the fact that we don't know what this is and what his plans are. And, you know, following in your brother's footsteps, that's a pretty (laughs) hard act to follow getting a doctor there. But, you know, and and looking at yeah, (laughs) yeah, it evens out in the long run, though um looking at it kind of from the perspective of how you had to get there and i you know did the research on you and i'm just fascinated it sounds like you you know what you made up what you didn't have an experience you made up with just kind of working your way through and maybe talking your way into roles is that story true about the r&b station that you started out with it wasn't always sports yeah. you would just find a way to work yeah. in media
3: I was in music, I was I did a slow jam show, which is like a format that doesn't even exist anymore. So it's like old R&B songs from the 70s, 80s and early 90s, which, by the way, is still music I love. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I wanted, you know, at some point you get to an age where I, I realized I was like, well, you know, am I going to be 40 years old and introducing a, uh, a Waka Flocka Flame record? Or, I just kind of gave up with yeah. the dumbest name I could think of. And I knew in my heart of hearts, right, like even when I was doing that, I remember when I was watching when I was I was literally having a radio shift going from record to record. But I'm betting on the Florida Marlins to beat the New York Yankees in the 2003 World Series. And I bring that up because that was like one of my big underdog wins of an early age where I'm like, oh, I might, you know, I might actually be good at this. And uh, yeah, like even like so I lived in San Francisco at the time. San Francisco sports radio wouldn't give me the time of day. And it was pretty much the era of Jim Rome, where Jim Rome sort of dominated American sports talk radio. And he had a very aggressive, you know, have a take, don't suck, was his motto approach. And I've loved sports for my entire life. I view it analytically. Uh, I gravitate towards betting. And none of those things, that sort of cerebral approach, you yeah. Despite the love of it, was nothing that was really um, valued back then. You had to be this aggressive macho guy to be on sports radio. So, I couldn't, I couldn't even get a meeting with anybody, mm-hmm. and so that was like hugely frustrating for me. Till a very, till really a much later age than most people get into it.
1: Well, I mean, you said a lot there that's, that's fascinating. You know, you, you had this love, you had this passion for sports gambling, you were, you know, invested in it and the analytic approach, which is, you know, in vogue right now, maybe (laughs) gone a little too heavy in some areas, but that, that style wasn't a thing back then. And I think in your backstory, I read that you, you know, Moneyball comes out and you gravitated towards it and it's, you know, kind of reaffirming a lot of your Sounds like thoughts that you had there. That sabermetrics approach. Have you just always approached sports and I mean, maybe life analytically in that regard?
3: Yeah, I mean, I like to say, and you know, I'm betting has the biggest impact betting has had on my life. Besides, hey, I won this bet. I lost this bet. Is that I tend to view the world through some of the principles of betting, mm-hmm. and. I view everything as a probability, and by the way, that makes you a little masugana <laughs> to use my, uh, to use my, my parents' word. But it, you know, it, it was getting to your point. There, there was a bigger thing there where it's like, it was not a valued thing back then. And yes, you're right. When Moneyball came out, the Michael Lewis book and then the subsequent movie, it was sort of like, oh, there are my people. <laughs> there they are. And that caused me to gravitate towards that was the light bulb for me where it was like, oh, I love betting. I've already been betting. Now I need to apply those principles in in Moneyball. Michael Lewis talks about how Billy Bean, the Oakland A's general manager, recognized market inefficiencies and player development, player acquisition, really. And I immediately said, oh, this is what I should be doing in betting. I should be a baseball. I should really focus on baseball and look at the inefficiencies. I grew up on baseball cards. There's stats on the back of a baseball card. But I knew even at the age of eight, I just couldn't articulate it. I knew that those stats didn't explain baseball in the way that the mainstream media was explaining baseball. There was so much more to it. So essentially what I ended up, you know, sort of the light bulb of Moneyball for me was, whereas Billy Bean used it for, you know, recognizing inefficiencies and in, acquiring players play, the player acquisition market major league baseball for me it was oh i can exploit baseball betting mm-hmm. by going past the baseball card stats of wins losses and era to sites like fan graphs because i was not responsible for the creation of the stats but i was able to apply much more detailed stats of minutia in baseball that truly reflected the skill sets of pitchers mm-hmm. that weren't really incorporated into the betting lines back in the early parts of the 2000
1: it's uh very you know forward thinking because nowadays it seems like that's something that everyone's trying to get a leg up on and you were looking at oh, it yeah. at that point did, did you feel like you had to get to las vegas was that something when you had that eureka no. moment or no
3: no as a matter of fact i'd never like i resisted i was like i don't want to live in las vegas i yeah. live in you know the only places i've ever lived in my life really besides college were washington dc and san francisco and i didn't you know I didn't have any real desire to live in Las Vegas. There were other means of betting, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, Mitch. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so I was able to, you know, I was I was fine doing that. It was only until I became actually employed in sports betting media that I finally moved to Las Vegas.
1: It's a, it's a very, you know, interesting, cool story that you find your lane. And then, again, once you get to the sports industry and the sports betting industry, looking at your resume and the shows you host, just trying different things and finding a way to carve your own lane, carve your own path in a crowded industry that's by the day getting more crowded.
3: Yeah, for sure. But, you know, I, I always knew, here's the thing, like, I remember when I, so I I started doing a podcast first, well before everybody and on earth had a podcast. In 2010, I started doing the betting dork podcast, which was really primitive there was no there was only one other sports betting podcast that i was aware of at the time and espn did it and so i developed a big listenership of you know the first time i did it i was like wow there's five people listening but one's in germany and one's in you know it was like the craziest thing like this advent of this new technology and so i i did something pretty innovative which was i actually told people when i lost bets also Which, you know, in an industry where no one ever loses, my God, they won't tell you about it. So people kind of gravitated towards that, and it grew from there. And, you know, my dad, again, back to my dad, I don't want to, you know, Mm. may rest in peace. I don't want to say anything badly, but he, you know, he was like, oh, you're wasting your time, he used to say in his voice. Um, And I was like, no, because I knew that it would become legal at some point in the U.S. I didn't know that it would in the year 2018 when it finally did. I thought probably I would have predicted a little later than that, but it, I knew it would happen eventually. Yeah. And so the, the world's coalesced. Yeah.
1: And, and making sure that you point out losses is a huge thing. I'd see that with content all the time. It feels like the shows that really do have staying power and are entertaining are able to laugh at themselves and realize, okay, I whiffed on this one. You see that in the traditional sports media too.
3: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice,
1: Uh, More with Gil Alexander here on Tennis Channel Inside and getting to you know the sport that we cover here at my network tennis you've been on the forefront with that some handicapping and I always you know I always look at you know tennis betting and how the industry has exploded and I wanted to get you know your perspective because there's so many matches there's so many strategies there's tournaments that are huge how do you attack tennis betting so to speak
3: well I first got into tennis seriously I was a baseball better as we described first and the reason that I gravitated towards baseball is because baseball is a team sport or is an individual sport really disguised as a team sport because mm-hmm. every play starts with a pitcher, throwing a baseball, pitching a baseball to a batter. And then everything happens from there. Once that sport started to change. And by that, I mean, starting pitchers came out of games earlier. Um, even some managers started with what they called openers. And so they were only in, you know, on the Hill for one inning or two to start a game When that started to happen, my ability to wrap my arms around baseball lessened. And I always loved tennis. I had bet tennis super casually before that, nothing serious. And I was like, okay, there's got to be something here with tennis that might not be in the betting lines either. And so, yeah, that's what really did the transition in me and for, for me. And I became sort of a serious bettor towards the latter part of last decade, and I had some really spectacular years betting tennis. By the way, this is not one of them. 2023 was a tough,
1: I wanted tough to, year. Yeah. To yeah. I, wanted yeah to, I wanted to get to that, too, because – and that's kind of the current landscape. I mean, it is cool to hear. It sounds like you were a fan before, like you were a oh, fan yeah. of tennis and, you know, your era. Yes. Timing is everything, right? And it, your your formative years were a big boom in this country, let's say.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, no. I mean, I loved – I loved McEnroe as a kid. Um you know, I, I, I liked Jimmy Connors. I probably don't like what I hear about him as an adult when you sort of peel back the curtain on, on some personalities. But I mean, I grew up in the, I mean, I remember distinctly where I was, this is how old I am. When Borg played Connors in that famous match at Wimbledon, one of their famous matches at Wimbledon, but the, you know, so you remember moments like that. You remember when a little later, when, when, uh, Connors beats Krikstein at the U.S. Open. There's so many of these images emblazoned in your mind. I was just reading Agassi's biography oh, the other day, amazing. and just oh, it's just incredible. The the that book I recommend it for. Like it doesn't even have to be a tennis biography. It's one of the great biographies I've ever read. He's Absolutely. so brutally honest in it. Um, but you know, like there's a there's a documentary on uh, about um, Marty Fish about the mental health struggles that he's gone through. I've been to one U S open match in my life that happened to be it coincidentally. So tennis was always something through the years that I love, but from a betting standpoint, I was like, okay, let me see if I can exploit this. And you know, 2020, I had Iga Sviatek winning the French open Yeah. based on her numbers, her raw data, which I'll get to in a minute from some of the lower tours. And she won as a 33 to one dog, 30 to one primarily in most places. But then it was, you know. But mainly, what I do is match by match. And in the year 2021, I was able to really crush tennis based on, and I'll even I don't know how interesting this is to your listeners, but based on serve percentage, winning serve uh, points, return of serve percentage uh, in terms of of both men and women, the mm-hmm. rate at which those points were won. Uh, break point data as well because that's sort of the runners in scoring position of baseball or the third down conversions of football those are more variant and you can sort of you know some people overperform or underperform on that and then the gradations of surface right clay versus hard court versus grass and within hard courts themselves yeah different gradations of what's fast hard court what's slow hard court so all of that I became a a, a super big tennis better, but I will tell you like the edge this year is much more difficult to beat this year for me.
1: Right. And in terms of grading out, that's why tennis is so fascinating. We're just talking head to head matchups for futures to win tournaments. There's rankings, but as you know, it's cumulative to the year. It doesn't take into account form Surface is different also head to head, how players do in individual matchups. And as you said, those stats peel back a lot of info, how players serve, how they return, the matchups themselves you know again props from the ega call i know not everyone would give you props but i'll give you props on this show for that, that call well
3: in 2020 that <laughs> that was a that was a heck of a, a thing yeah. you know i think by the way just to get into that like mm-hmm. i think ega's win at Be- in beijing here this past week was her way of saying i hope you all enjoyed it <laughs> while it lasted yeah uh, it's about me again
1: it's it's so true because she's still well. Ho hum. This isn't her best year. She's not number one. She still won sixty matches and, on the season and counting. And right. people are going to make adjustments. Iga was the top dog. They were chasing her. They raised their level. Coco wins the U.S. Open. Sabalenka's got number one. Of course, Iga's going to bounce right back herself. So that's just the, uh, another thing that I look for there. But we have a lot of still a lot of still info to get to on this show, and I wanted to kind of get. Gil, your perspective on, you know, we're coming off an era where we had top dominant players. We had the big three on the men's side. We had the Serena Williams era. We're getting there with players like Alcaraz and Iga, but maybe that does make it harding. And I'm curious to hear your take on, on this, if it's harder to price and, and make bets, knowing that the field does seem a little more wide open than it's been. Not that it's a bad thing for the quality of tennis, but how does that impact the betting strategies?
3: Yeah. My, my buddy, Dan Weston, who, uh, bets tennis for big international site like betfair and pinnacle we had a discussion about this the other day where it's like the margins do seem thinner this year in a way that there is a little more variance than we'd like in terms of outcomes i mean i i've just anecdotally i've lost so many bets this year on in matches where you're like i cannot believe i lost that like right? Like, you still because feel you had, good
1: after you're like i'd make that bet again
3: I'd make that bet again. And that, by the way, that's the key to betting, right? Being able to overcome negative variants like that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'll just, from a macro non-betting perspective, Ega being as it's so funny, you're right. It's considered a down year that's because she came off a year when she won 37 matches in a row and, you know, won two slams and was number one for 75 straight weeks. And she won five tournaments this week and you know, it's five this year, rather pardon me. And it's considered a down year. I still think she's the best player, but you're right. Like those other players raise their level and that's going to happen. I will say on the men's tour, if you look back on 2023 and I get it, we're still in October. So there's still a little more to be written about it. But if we think about where our brains were in January, I think this is a representative feeling. I think we thought that, you know, the whole Runes of the world and the Yannick Sinners of the world and other players of that ilk would kind of close the gap a little bit. And I'm not sure we really saw that this year. I still, I mean, I still think those things will happen, right? Mm -hmm. Yannick Center is Mm -hmm. clearly on the cusp, but it didn't really happen this year. You know, it was sort of like, wow, no, Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz are still a cut above. Obviously we had great years for some guys like Tommy Paul, but they're, they're, they're not really, you know, at that. Listen, (laughs) Djokovic, I used to say about Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal they're better at tennis than any of us are at anything. So big anything yeah. you do in the world. They're gods. And Carlos Alcaraz is a status, too. So it's to answer your question, that's a long-winded way mm-hmm. of saying it's tough. It's tough to beat now based just on the numbers mm-hmm. that, I, that I cited earlier. And if it were ever that easy, right, that's the other thing, Mitch. Like, it's never as easy as, oh, here are the numbers this person's going to win, mm-hmm. juxtaposed against the value. You know, you take a match today mm-hmm. – Lesia Tsarenko is playing Donna Vekic. I think there's value on Lesia Tsarenko as a slight underdog. This is in uh, in uh, China, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great, but there's some people who would say, yeah, but remember, these two have history. You know, Vecich wouldn't ha- wouldn't shake Tsarenko's hand back at Indian Wells.
1: The injury drama. She, you
3: know, yeah, because, yeah. well, the injury drama, Serenko acted like she was going to retire mm-hmm. after every point. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I think Serenko had lost <laughs> matches by walkover or retired yeah, like eight I mean, in her last number. seven. Yeah, it was ridiculous.
1: And then she did pull so, out the next match, too. I, I was at, at Indian <laughs> Wells, yeah.
3: That's <laughs> correct, yeah. you were. Yeah. I was at Indian Wells, too. Oh, I missed you there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. Some people would say, yeah, you know, you can throw out all those numbers. Vecca just wanna, wants to kill her. So, I, you know, there's always yeah. that kind of – Uh, less quantitative stuff that goes into all of this as well.
1: The consistency of the top players to be, you know, not anyone, but a few, a select few can have great tournaments, can have great runs, can get hot for a month. But what really separates the best of the best, obviously the big three Alcaraz there and now EGA too, is that week in, week out, they are going to go deep into tournaments and give themselves a chance to win. So uh, their baseline game and not just from the baseline, but their low level, their floor is phenomenal. Uh, before we wrap be, before we wrap this up, Gil Alexander, this has been a blast. I do want to, you know, know from the personal perspective of and I'm sure you deal with this a lot, we deal with this too here, but you know, reacting and, you know, the negative connotations to gambling, how you deal with people that are just not, you know, for it and think it might be doing harm in a way to the sport, to the sports that they love. How do you deal with that kind of perception and reaction?
3: You know, I, I hope that that judgment goes away about it i think that yeah i mean look does betting can betting have a downside of course it can if it's not done responsibly um sure there is absolutely that that exists um that's always going to be a part of society no matter what and i think we I i think the industry takes a you know a good amount of measures to 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 really provide help for those that that go down the wrong path but as far as you know it diminishing the sport in any way or or hurting the sport in any way you know betting only helps betting only helps from a from a standpoint of bringing in fan uh, excitement Uh, there are people out there that would never have gravitated towards tennis who now will um does tennis have a specific, now I will allow for this, does tennis have a specific thing because it's an individual sport where the lesser tours could be affected by some bad actors? Yes. And we've seen that. And that is absolutely still something that's out there. Uh, it's not going to affect you know, majors mm-hmm. and, and and masters tournaments yeah. and 500s on the main tour. But yeah, on ITF and maybe on some of the 250s and 125s where people aren't making as much money, that's always going to be an issue. So I will will concede that point. But in terms of more macro than that, because those are always going to be exceptions to the rule, I think the wider the net you cast, the better it is for the sport that we love. And I will say it till the day I die. There is nothing as great as tennis from both a physical and mental combination. It's the greatest sport on earth.
1: Might be the most well-rounded athletes in the world, given what they have to do in the mental challenges. Uh, and I'm with you there too. I mean, ha- doing it responsibly. Tennis might be more susceptible to some bad actors. I think raising the money and raising the you know raising the prize money yeah. all across the board is helping because it's you know yeah. taking away that carrot, so to speak, that's dangling there. Well, Gil, this has been a blast. Uh, last thing, what do you have on tap? We know about the show. We know about a numbers game. You know, daily during the week and the Beating the Book podcast, anything else on the horizon we should know about?
3: No, that's it. Numbers game is uh, 10 to noon Eastern on, uh, on VEASAN.com, on uh, iHeartRadio, YouTube TV, and on the DraftKings network. Uh, and then the Beating the Book podcast, which is primarily football, American football, yeah. I, I must tell you, during the uh, American football season, but we do all the previews for all the slams yeah. in the off season. We have a ball with tennis.
1: Do you have any futures already for Australia? Are we, are we thinking yet, or are we going to wait a little bit?
3: I don't have any in pocket. I would tell you if I did. Okay. Uh, there is no 30-to-1 shot, as you intimated. I go, it's tough at this point to get in front of the EGA train or the Carlos train. So, like, the days of 30-to-1s, they'll come back one day, but it's yeah. not right now.
1: Women's tennis is kind of in a really – it's in a better place than it was maybe, like, two, three years ago because you have, like, I'd say eight to 12 women that I'd put at the at the cut where, you know, even then you're not going to get that super long shot. You might still, but – You know, this year we saw a lot of talented women. I think they're all still in the top 10 win majors.
3: Yes, and to your point, like anybody who had Marquetta Vondrasova winning Wimbledon, (laughs) like my hat's off to you because I didn't see that coming. So, yeah, anything's possible.
1: We'll have to get you back on as we gear up for the major season, uh, getting some uh, advice in Australia. Gil Alexander from the VEASAN Network, thanks so much for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Mitch. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks to both Pam Schreiber and Gil Alexander for being outstanding guests on this week's Tennis Channel Inside In episode, and thanks as always to everybody out there for listening and supporting this podcast. Upsets galore on the other side of the world, highlighted by Carlos Alcaraz losing to Grigor Dimitrov as he chases the Novak Djokovic in the number one ranking. Alcaraz did slip up, so full marks and props to Grigor and craig talley the australian open tournament director some wishful thinking announcing that rafael nadal is entered into next year's happy slam nadal urging everyone on twitter to proceed with caution he's going to try but no guarantees there this was tennis channel insight in and it's on the tennis channel podcast network go to tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of shows and find the podcast easily accessible on all your platforms all your favorite platforms Spotify to Apple to Amazon Music to iHeart. If you search Tennis Channel Inside In, the show pops right up. You can subscribe, leave a rating or a review, and you can get automatically downloaded episodes to your phone or listening device. It's that simple. Tennis Channel Inside In returns next week. More tennis to talk about, more to recap from the Asian swing, and we look ahead to the finals, the WTA Tour Finals in Cancun and the ATP Tour Finals, a race to Turin with some big stops, including one in Paris along the way. For Pam Shriver and Gil Alexander, my name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.